afternoon, everyone. It's wonderful to see you. Afternoon. Welcome today if you're visiting, um, particularly for the first time. It's good to have you with us. We trust that it is by the Lord's providence that you're here, um, despite the excuse being Elliot's dedication, maybe. And yet, um, we also rejoice in the fact that God is among us. And as we gather in the name of the Lord, he is faithful to make himself known and glorify his name. For those who don't know, my name's Ephraim, and I'm one of the elders here at Ecclesia. It's a pleasure for me to be starting our Christmas mini-series. Thank you very much, T. Thank you. Yeah, any little help with that, because we spend a long time on these visuals. <laughs> and um, our mini-series is called The One True Story, and it's themes taken from the book by a brother called Tim Chester, um, the book being called The One True Story, as you can see there on the um, screen. And in the book, there are devotional readings each day leading up to Christmas. Uh, it started on the 1st of December, and so if you um, are just hearing of it, it's not too late to jump in and catch up. They're short devotional readings, um, tremendous in their substance and content and the way in which they encourage our souls and focus our, focus our minds as we look towards um, commemorating the birth of our Savior. And fundamentally, one of the things I really appreciate is that the author endeavors to look at the whole of Scripture Normally, when we think about the Christmas story, people just kind of think about the birth narratives at the beginning of Matthew, the beginning of, of, of Luke, and um, that's fundamentally, maybe people going to Isaiah, to the prophecies, and so on. But in these devotionals, Tim is exploring all of Scripture and how it speaks to and of the birth of the Savior. And so I do encourage you to, to get hold of that um, and enjoy it. And um, the, the, the next few occasions that we gather, um, as I say, we'll be taking themes from this. And so um, it's, uh, it's most readily available at the Good Book Company, especially if you want an electronic version. Um, if you're a Kindle person like me um, and you'd rather go that route, um, you can't get it on Amazon in Kindle form, but you can get it at the Good Book Company website. Um, and it's a few pounds. So, our Christmas series. Some of you were here uh, a few weeks ago when Pastor Rob shared the trailer. And in it, you might remember this image. And this is where we begin. An unorthodox approach to the Christmas story, and yet one that is deeply rooted in Scripture from Genesis to Revelation. See, at Christmas, we're used to seeing the, the, the Christmas cards with, you know, snow scenes and little baby in, 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 a, in a little um, feeding um, trough that looks, looks really kind of clean and sanitized and so on. But the reality of the story would have been very different. And not only is the, the reality of Christ coming and the scene in which he came very different, but it's very necessary for us to think about 
the reason, the purpose for his coming in ways that actually connect with us and cause us to be able to go into this season with a, a greater sense of conviction. Because I know, I know that there are so many who feel a lack of conviction, even as Christians, with regards to Christmas. Christmas is pagan. It's so commercialized. So on and so on and so forth. To the point where there's a sense of discouragement. Well, I'm not really going to make a big deal about Christmas. The Bible doesn't tell us to celebrate Jesus' birth. And you're absolutely right. And there's so much more that could be said in responding to each of those criticisms. But hear this. The Bible tells us in all that we do, whether we eat or drink, to do all to the... Hello? To the glory of God. Even if we do something as mundane as eating and drinking, that we're to do this to the glory of God. And so I say this, having experienced that discouragement in my own heart, some of you will remember back in the days when we were at church, I, I stood there and I was like, you know what, I don't even really know what Christmas is about these days. And I, I just had to be honest. And I expressed my discouragement even as I was supposed to preach a Christmas sermon. But the Lord is a mighty deliverer. He's a great redeemer. And my heart has changed because you know what I see? I see an opportunity to glorify Christ. Within our culture, within our society, we have an opportunity to glorify Jesus Christ, the Lord. Now, I wonder if there's anyone in here who is desiring, committed to, wanting to see Christ glorified in your life. Just put your hand up. So then surely I'm in good company. Amen? We desire to see Christ glorified in a culture that is so readily um, willing to deny Christ, to excuse Christ, to sideline and marginalize him, we have an opportunity to make great of his name. Amen? And as we consider our text today, we'll be even more greatly encouraged as to why we ought to take this opportunity and to do so with all of our hearts now and not just at Christmas. Revelation 12, verses 5 and 9. She gave birth to a son, a male child. The great dragon was hurled down. The ancient snake called the devil or Satan, who leads the world astray. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your faithfulness, for your goodness and your mercy toward us. We thank you, Lord, for your loving kindness in that, Lord, you give us a reason to celebrate this season on a personal level, on a deeper level, because you have revealed yourself to us in the person of Christ. We thank you, Lord God, and we ask that as we approach your word today with humble hearts, we pray that you would speak to our hearts, Lord, that you would encourage our hearts, that you would strengthen us, that you would cause us to rejoice in our Savior, in our rescuer, the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord, for the presence of your Spirit who works among us even as we listen and even as I speak. 
Have your way, Lord, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so who can tell me what this is? Go on. George's Cross. Or is it a first aid sign? <laughs> Bertram said, or a, or a porthole window with a red cross in it. <laughs> All right. Fertile imaginations. Whoever said St. George's Cross? I'll give you a... Uh, actually, it was, who said St. George's Cross? All right, Sam, you're, the, you're the, the boldest to put your hand up first. Whose hand? Niran, your hand was up as well. Ah, oh, just bad positioning, bro. <laughs> I saw Sam first. <laughs> Have you got this book already, The One True Story? I'm going to give you a copy afterwards. You see? It pays to play. <laughs> oh, you got yours, Linda. But have you been reading it, though? Oh, gosh. All right, then. Praise be to God. <laughs> Remind me, Sam, afterwards. I'll give it to you. I've got it in my bag. St. George's Cross. Now, it's interesting because St. George is the patron saint of England. Many of you will recognize that cross from the English flag. And it's part also in the Union Jack being the, the flag of the combined nations of Great Britain, the United Kingdom. And so the St. George's Cross is fundamental and at the heart of English identity. But what about this St. George guy? Now, I remember in school being told of the story of St. George and the dragon. Any of you guys were told that story in school? Yeah. So I remember being told about that story of St. George and the dragon. But actually, I couldn't, before yesterday, have told you the details of that story. I couldn't have recalled that story to you in any great detail. Apart from, George was a guy who was supposed to have slain a dragon and was a hero as a result of it. George the Dragon Slayer. There's a mythological story that surrounds George the Saint. <clears throat> he was actually from Libya. Imagine that. The patron saint of England is Libyan. That's a whole other sermon, right? <laughs> Order anyway, no, <laughs> let me not get involved in that right now. And so, what basically, what happened in this town in Libya, there was a town being terrorized by this dragon, and they would feed the dragon sacrifices of animals, they would give lambs, and then when the lambs in the town ran out, they would give um, other cattle and livestock. When the other livestock ran out, they needed to find some other means of appeasing this dragon. And so they took to offering their children. And so a lot was cast, and the first lot that was drawn actually fell to the king's daughter. And so she was to be the first child that was offered to this dragon in order to appease his anger. And yet, 
as you can imagine, the king was desperate for his daughter not to be offered. And so he offered great riches and reward to any who would either take the place of his daughter um, or, or in some way endeavor to try and overcome the dragon. Long story short, George came into the town and he saw the, the daughter who was of age waiting by the lake where the dragon was supposed to have emerged from. And she was there, as, as you can imagine, upset and, and feeling anxious. And he went over to her. He didn't know what was going on. And why are you here like this feeling, leave me, she says to him. Leave me to my fate. But George persisted to the point where she disclosed, I, I'm about to be consumed by the dragon that's been terrorizing our town and I am a, a sacrifice that is to be given as an appeasement. Well, George had another plan. Being a warrior, he girded himself and his sword and he awaited the dragon. And as the, the dragon came, he went to meet him. And after a death-defying altercation with the dragon, George overcame and slew the dragon where he stood, thus becoming the hero and the victor. It's interesting because even though that story is somewhat mythological, it's said to be rooted in truth that there was actually a person called George, born in about 275 AD. And he was born to a, a Greek Christian family. He was orphaned as a teenager and decided to join the Roman army. He rose through the ranks and became an accomplished soldier and yet he was a committed and dedicated Christian. He served under the emperor Diocletian. And if you know anything about church history, you will know that Diocletian was a terrible persecutor of Christians. And he issued an edict for everyone in the empire to make sacrifices to the Roman deities, of which he was regarded as one, as a Caesar. And yet... Giorgio, as his name was, or jo Georgios, not Armani, <laughs> he refused to submit to Diocletian and refused to offer sacrifices to the Roman deities. Now, the interesting thing was Diocletian actually had a personal relationship with Georgios and tried to convince him as much as possible to just submit to the edict. And yet, George refused. And in 302 AD, Diocletian, influenced by his wicked advisors, issued an edict that every soldier should offer a sacrifice to the Roman gods. And any Christian soldiers that refused to do so were to be arrested and tortured.
Diocletian was left with no choice at George's refusal and therefore had him killed, had him executed according to his own law. He was actually decapitated on April the 23rd, 303 AD. And his body returned to his home city in Libya. Now that's written in the annals of history and said to be a true story. It's interesting that April the 23rd is St. George's Day here in England. And the day when it's been chosen to commemorate the memory, to celebrate the memory of George the Fearless. You say that's the least Christmas story you've heard in a long time. And yet we see a story that was rooted in truth, that was blown and expanded to become somewhat mythological as time went by, and yet has left an enduring legacy on the life of a peoples being presented in the story of St. George, the dragon slayer. And yet people find it so hard with much greater evidence to consider Jesus Christ, the conquering line of the tribe of Judah, the true dragon slayer. In Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, right at the beginning in the garden, we see this scene unfold where God speaks to the serpent, Satan. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And this is God speaking to who we know to be Satan. Actually, he's introduced in Genesis right at the beginning as the serpent. Now, I wonder if there's anyone here who doesn't like snakes. Uh-huh. Okay, a few. Um, I was going to try and make an, a, an appointment with a snake handler to come in with a, a big python. And, and pass it around and you guys can all handle the snake and take pictures and so on. But um, I, I, I kind of um, thought less of that idea because I, I couldn't justify the use of church resources. <laughs> <laughs> but just at the thought, some of you are cringing in your chair, just at the thought of having this scaly skin snake put around your neck. This snake with one twitch that could choke you as you stand there, that could crush you, that could even crush you and swallow you whole, as the biggest pythons and anacondas can do. Let's not lose sight of what we're being presented with when the Bible speaks of Satan as being the serpent. 
All of those feelings that many of us have, some, some people don't care. I know that some of you, you'll be like, yeah, I've got snakes at home. I would be like, why? But nonetheless, each to their own. Some of you may not have any kind of disregard for snakes, but most people, most often, recognize that snakes are horrible things. They're horrible creatures. Even the way they look with their tongue just... <laughs> See that? You look at, you, you're looking at me like... And imagine if I was really a snake. So this is what we have to understand. We're talking about a being who is from the outset regarded as despicable, disgusting. We have all of these colloquialisms that refer to people being snaky. And you know, if somebody calls you snaky, they're not paying you a compliment, just in case you didn't know that. And we see here where that comes from, because the serpent was more crafty, sly, cunning, deceptive. And so this begins to speak to us of the nature of this being regarded as the serpent. Now, it begs the question, was it a real snake that could talk? Or was this some other manifestation of Satan? You know what? We're not given that detail. We're told it's a serpent. We're told that the serpent spoke. Within God's scheme of creation, God's able to do anything. And so it's not such that it's a, such a far-fetched notion, notion that it must be mythological. It must be made up. We're dealing with a supernatural God who made all things and can do whatever he wants with whoever he wants, whenever he wants. I mean, people have less problem with the talking donkey, right? Why? Because God caused him to talk. God can do what he wants, how he wants, when he wants. And yet because of the, the devil, because of the serpent's involvement in deceiving Eve, and leading Adam and Eve astray, he was condemned. And here when it says, I will put enmity, that word enmity is, is basically hostility. There's, there's, there's hostility between the serpent, Satan, and the woman. But not just the serpent and the woman, but also between his offspring and her offspring his offspring who is that referring to well you know what his offspring refers to all of us before we had submitted our lives to Christ it refers to everyone who is not Submitted to Christ. Because Jesus spoke in John 8. And when he spoke to the, um, the, the scribes and Pharisees, he said, you are of your father, the devil. Because you carry on just like him, like father, like kids. And the reality is that 
as we'll see in just a moment. All who are not in Christ are under the power and authority of Satan. And so, in that we see the offspring relates to all people who are not submitted to God. And that, ho- that hostility, I can't even say the word, that hostility, that, that hot anger, that conflict, that tension exists between those who are gods and those who are not. Particularly and specifically as it relates to Christ. Because it speaks of the offspring of the woman. Speaking of Jesus in particular. And it talks about the outcome of this. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. See, the woman's offspring would bruise the head of Satan. Would hurt his authority. And yet, he would bruise the heel of Christ. The heel being part of the foot by which we make progress, and yet we see that this will be an impacting and yet momentary impeding of the progress of the Lord. Now, as we arrive at Revelation chapter 12, we see this picture being portrayed to us. And this revelation was given to the Apostle John, and he was someone who was particular about identifying signs, the signs of the times, the signs of God. We see this in his gospel. We see this again here. And as he's sharing these things, and how many people have, uh, have read or attempted to read the book of Revelation? Put your hand up. All right. And um, keep your hand up. Keep, keep your hand up. Keep your hand up. And what I want you to do is I want you to keep your hand up if you feel you understand the book of Revelation. I'm looking for that hand. Uh, sis, me and you are going to do Bible study together because I need to get some of that, that wisdom and revelation that you say you have. By far, the book of Revelation is probably the hardest book in the Bible to understand. And so even as we look at the chapter, we understand that it's hard to understand. Revelation chapter 12, verse 1. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the woman, sorry, with the moon under her feet and on her head a crown of 12 stars. You might want to open to this chapter as we're going to be referring to it. So we see a woman being portrayed here. And she was obviously a very significant woman because she was clothed with the sun. And she had the moon under her feet and on her head a crown of 12 stars. What exactly and specifically they refer to, we could probably spend a long time talking about. But one of the things we do understand that it marks this woman's significance. And not just in a momentary or a local, but in a universal sense. 
clothed with the sun, the moon under her feet, 12 stars around her head. This is a universal personage that we're seeing. She was pregnant, verse 2, and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign, okay, here's another one, appeared in heaven. Now bear in mind, we're looking at signs, and so these signs are not an end in themselves, but they represent something else. They're a sign that points to something else. Another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon. And not only was it a great red dragon, but he had seven heads and ten horns. And on his heads, seven diadems. And so this speaks of a fierce dragon. The heads and horns and diadems are representative of authority, of power. And you can cross-reference that with the book of Daniel. And so this is a powerful dragon, a fierce and powerful dragon. In verse 4, his tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. Hmm. So this woman's in agony with birth pains, about to give birth. This dragon is poised to scoop the child and eat him up. Verse 5, she gave birth to a male child. Now you would think, uh-oh, problem, watching this film. You know, the, devil, the, the, the dragon's at the door, ready to burst in and eat the child. You'd be maybe wishing that she wouldn't be giving birth. And yet she gave birth to a male child. One who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. Notice, who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is nourished for 1260 days. And so despite the intent of the dragon to consume the child, the child was winged away to safety as it was caught up to God and to his throne. Verse 7, now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, the ancient serpent, who is called the devil and Satan. Ah, so we see the identity of the dragon now given to us by John. The dragon is the devil. Satan, as he's also known, the ancient serpent, the deceiver of the whole world, he was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a voice, I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down 
who accuses them day and night before our God. A celebratory declaration. Yes! He's defeated. He's thrown down. The accuser of the brethren. And they have conquered him, verse 11. The people of God. By the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they love, love not their lives unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea. For the devil has come down to you in great wrath. Because he knows that his time is short. Mm. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring. On those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. Now evidently, I'm not going to try and explain every nuance and detail of this. Because neither is there time or neither is this the occasion for that. But let's consider a few highlights here. Verse 5, we recognize that. Well, verse 4, we recognize that the dragon was poised to devour the child that the woman was going to give birth to. Now, in this, it's generally accepted that the woman is representative of the people of God. The people of God. That the child or the son is Jesus. Now, it's important that we don't consider the woman to be Mary. Because if we think that the woman is Mary, we're going to get confused later on. Mary is one of God's people, the Bible tells us. So she's included in the symbolism that's being represented here. So the woman is the people of God. It's interesting because in the Old Testament, the people of God were known as the wife of the Lord. And we see that referred to in various ways at various times. Isaiah, um, Jeremiah, Hosea. That the people of God were regarded as the Lord's wife. But what do we hear in the New Testament? We don't hear the word wife. We hear a different term for the people of God. The bride. Thank you. I don't have any more books though, but thank you. In the New Testament, we hear the term being used, the bride. Now, if the term, if, if John used the word wife in this chapter, people would relegate it to the, the people of God in the Old Testament. If we use the term bride, they would say, okay, well, it's just the New Testament saints. But as we see the term woman, a more generic term being used, it's a recognition of the people of God throughout the ages. Jesus 
is a descendant of Abraham. He is a descendant of David. He is a descendant of God's people throughout the Old Testament. They are representative of the woman who, were, who was to give birth. Now, I hesitate to say Israel, because even Paul said in Romans 9, that not all Israel are Israel. Not everybody who bore the name Israelite was a true Israelite at heart. But there was a remnant of people. There was a small core of people among them who were truly the people of God. It's just like not everybody who goes to church is a Christian. We understand that. And so there was a faithful remnant from whom Christ is a descendant. Now, what happened at the time of Christ's birth? As Mary was laden with child, if you're familiar with the, the, the birth narratives and the story of Jesus' birth, there was a king at the time called Herod. And what did Herod endeavor to do? Speak, speak a little louder. He attempted to kill Jesus. Now, he didn't know which baby it was going to be because he had the wise men come and, the, and they came asking him, where is the king who is to be born in Israel? And so he felt threatened. And he was like, hold on a minute. Some next king that's going to come and try and... No, 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 I'm not having it. And so he, he, he gave the, the, the command for the, what is known as the slaughter of the innocents. When all the children under what age? Under two years old were to be killed. And yet, Jesus was spared. How? Because his parents took him and they took flight to Egypt. And so he escaped the slaughter. And the interesting thing is this. Think back, think back. When did that happen before? In the Old Testament with Moses. So this wasn't the first time that the dragon, in anticipation of the one who would come, the dragon slayer who would come to bruise his head, attempted to wipe out the potential offspring, the individual offspring. Satan knew it was an individual. Why would he do the same thing at the, at the birth of Moses? Have, seek to have the midwives kill all of those that were under two years old. This was the work of Satan, pulling the strings behind the scenes of history. And yet, Moses was spared by the Lord. God is faithful to spare his people. Amen? You should rejoice in that today. If you're one of his people, you know that God has protection over your life. Amen? And so he was poised. But the child was saved by God. And yet it's interesting because it says the child was caught up to God and to his throne. Now we know that between the birth of Christ and his ascension to the throne of God, so a lot, quite a lot happened, right? He lived a sinless life. Having lived a sinless life, he was crucified. Uh-oh. The heel was bruised. The Savior was struck. His progress was momentarily impeded. But death could not hold him down. 
Because on the third day he arose. Up from the grave he arose. Wow, no old school. I'm not going to finish the line. With a mighty triumph for his foes. Rich, you got us all singing in the pulpit, bro. <laughs> the Lord arose victorious. So despite the fact that Satan did deal him a blow, in fact, a deathly blow, it wasn't sufficient to stop him. We'll come back to that. And yet, we see verse 9 and 10. And, and the timing of this is hard to understand. Actually, the time frames, is this, a, is, is this just an overall summary of events that have taken place in the past and so on and so There is no chronology clearly evident here. But we do see clear declarations of truth. The great dragon was thrown down, the ancient serpent, who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. Listen to these titles. The ancient serpent. He was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. Now, I was out in um, Lewisham yesterday doing a spot of evangelism with Mama Shirley and Bertram and Missy and um, Margaret from Elsia. And we were talking to this guy that we often have conversation with out there. We've kind of began to develop a little relationship with him. Um, Roger, Bertram, you know who I'm talking about. And um, I can't remember where he's from, actually. Where's he from? From Brazil. He's from Brazil, isn't it? Yeah. Um, so he's, he's, uh, he's not British um, of origin, but um, he's always out there working hard. He works with the refuse team, keeping the place clean and so on. And um, sometimes when he finishes work and so on, he'll, he'll come over and have a more extended chat with us. But he had a, a, a slight breather between um, activities yesterday and we were talking. And um, what was it he said? So the, the, the conversation just kind of, he, he's very willing and actually um, quite happy to talk about God and talk about the Lord. And so there's a point in the conversation where we were talking about the free gift that God offers in Christ. And um, he said, well, what use is that to me or something along those lines? What has, what has Jesus done for me? And I said, hmm. Now, he, he professes that he was once uh, a Christian or, or once who, he said, in fact, his, his somewhat claim to fame, because he says it quite often, he said, I wanted to be a priest. I wanted to be a priest. So he's not someone who's unfamiliar with the Bible and so on. So I was kind of a little bit, not surprised, but kind of taken back. I, I didn't think that you would ask me that question, Roger. And so um, I said to him, do you know what Jesus' names mean? Jesus' name means. And he said, no. I said, his name means rescuer. It means savior. And he was like, hmm, okay, well, whatever. What do I need saving from? <laughs> and um, so we, we, we continued in conversation, but it was brief because he had to get back to work. But just this sense of Jesus being a rescuer, Jesus being a savior, 
and not understanding the significance of that. Here we see an aspect of that being portrayed, being spoken to us. The dragon was thrown down, the ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. Now, for us as Christians, we can sometimes maybe fall into the trap of thinking that we are a match for Satan. And that actually, even um, Satan's power over us pre-Christ Christ was not really you know, that, that significant. You know what? Don't get it twisted. The devil is a formidable foe. He is a wicked, heartless, compassionless, truthless, moralless being who is evil through and through, and he knows the ways of man. In Genesis chapter 3, he meets Adam and Eve in the garden. When and how he got there, we don't know, but we know that he existed before them and he still exists today. So don't think that his powers of deception are merely David Blaine. Sleight of hand, little juju. <laughs> the devil is cunning and he knows you and he, he knows your frame. He knows what you're made of and he knows how to. Listen, James tells us, we just went through the book of James, right? It's, what does it say in the book of James? It says, let no one say when he is tempted that he is tempted by God. But when he is tempted, he is drawn away and enticed. And who do you think is doing the drawing and the enticing? Satan. But he's drawing us away according to our own desires. He exploits the weakness within Satan is a formidable foe, and there is only one who could ever have and has ever overcome him, and that is Jesus Christ, the dragon slayer. Look at the names that scripture gives. Even in this chapter alone, he's called the great red dragon, the ancient serpent, the devil, Satan, which is basically accuser the deceiver of the whole world. None, no one, not one being is exempt from his deception. He is the accuser of the brethren. Other names in scripture, Belial, meaning vileness. Not if there's anyone who's ever been down in a sewer, in one of the sewers of London, where all the excrement and Everything goes down into the sewers. It all just washes down there and runs rampant down there in the sewers and there's rats down there and filthy, disgusting. When you think about that, that's the picture of Satan. Vile, disgusting, nasty, Belial. He's the God of this age. He is the tempter. The ruler of demons, Beelzebub, the lord of the flies or lord of dung. 
Dung is a polite way of saying excrement, which is also a polite way of referring to these things. This is, this is who Satan is. This is his nature and character. He's the evil one. Enemy. And yet, imagine, he's the angel of light. Stand up in a white suit. Look, looking suave. Convincing. But don't be deceived. He's a liar. Furthermore, he's not just a liar. He is the origin and source of all lies. He's the father of lies. Murderer. Ruler of this world. Just in case we missed it before, he's the angel of light. And yet he's a thief. Jesus says the thief has come to steal, to kill, and to destroy. He's a destroyer. And Satan has no mercy, not one shred, not one millimeter, not one inch of mercy exists within his being. He has no compassion. He has no love for anyone, for no people, not for you, for your mum, for your children, for no one. And yet he's, he's wise by reason of years. He's been there since the beginning. He's been influential behind the scenes of history. Even now, conspiracy theories abound, Illuminati. The, the, the Jesuit order. So, well, we know that there is a devil who is a deceiver. He is the master of lies and fabrication, deception. People have been talking about this, this U.S. election and all of the false news that influenced the outcome. And people still talking about fake news on social media and on the Internet. These websites that portray themselves as legitimate news sites, spinning stories that they've made up themselves. The amount of times I've seen news, this person was dead. Only to see them tweet. Hmm? <laughs> well, not yet. Satan is actively, intentionally at work in this world, deceiving everyone. And yet we recognize the great dragon was thrown down. And salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. You see, we recognize this to be true for all who are in Christ Jesus. When Jesus stood before the people, as he spoke to his disciples in the book of John, he said, 
the accuser, the devil, has nothing on me. You see, there was no sin that Jesus committed by which the devil could hold him. So could, that the devil could hold as leverage over him. The devil has nothing on me. Brush the dirt off his shoulder. There's nothing that the devil can say to me. There's nothing that the devil can say about me. Having lived a sinless, perfect life, about to go and fulfill the Father's will unto the uttermost, Jesus was the only one qualified to defeat the devil because it is he alone who is without sin. And yet, we recognize that Jesus succumbed to the power of Satan. Somebody once said that the devil's greatest weapon against Jesus was to kill him. And yet, Jesus' greatest weapon against the devil was to die. We see it portrayed in that Matrix moment when Neo comes to the end of his journey. Spoiler alert for those who are like, Pastor Rob said he ain't seen Matrix in it. He's not in here. It's all right then. Cool. And at the end, when he's about to conquer Mr. Um, the, the agents and the whole system and everything, the means by which he does it is he allows them to kill him to overtake him in order that he might defeat it from within. It's a crude portrayal of the tremendous victory that Jesus wrought over Satan. We see this in 1 John 3, verse 8. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. You see, Jesus is the dragon slayer. And yet there's a, there's a warning in this verse. Whoever makes a practice of sinning, and when you read 1 John, he talks a lot about sin, and he talks a, a lot about those who are guilty of sin and um, what that means with regards to their relationship with God. But it's helpful to keep in mind this phrase, this term, a practice of sinning, where sin is being practiced habitually, casually, willingly, on an ongoing basis. It says, that person is of the devil. If there is sin in our lives in a way that is casual and ongoing, sin that is not resisted, that we willingly give into, then it calls into question as to whether or not you truly are the Lord's. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. Now, as much as there's a caution, there's also a note of hope. Because Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil, and that's the power of sin included. If a person continues in sin and resists Christ, the Savior born in the manger, who grew and lived a sinless life, died a criminal's death and rose a victorious ascendancy from the grave. 
Jesus says this will be their fate. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. You see, hell was made for the devil and his angels. But all who resist Christ refuse to submit to him. They co-sign their destiny. They co-sign with the devil and will partake of his destiny. And yet, back in Revelation chapter 12, we see in verse 11 that those who were redeemed, the saints of God, overcome, conquer by the blood of the Lamb. The shed blood of Christ and by the word of their testimony. Holding faith in Christ testifying of Christ's lordship, both in word and deed. Colossians 2 says this, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, being Christ, having forgiven us all our trespasses, praise God, by cancelling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. You see, the devil never had anything on Jesus, but had everything on us. Full record, ready to hold against us, to accuse us before God, as he did Job in Job chapter 1 and 2. And yet, Jesus has cancelled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. The victory, triumph, is granted through relationship with Christ. As Mary received notification from the angel she responds to, to God in song in Luke chapter 1. And at the end of that song, it's sometimes known as Mary's Magnificat. We see these verses. He has helped his servant Israel. God's people. In remembrance of his mercy. As he spoke to our fathers. To Abraham. And to his offspring forever. God is so good to have sent a rescuer to slay the dragon that tormented the world, that tormented our souls. Jesus is the dragon slayer through whom we've been relieved. We've been rescued from the power of Satan. And it is this Savior that we celebrate as we remember his birth at this time that has been set aside to celebrate the coming of our Savior. Let's stand as we hail the birth of the dragon slayer.
Father God, we hail Jesus, our Lord and our King, that he would condescend, that he would lower himself, that he would not merely take on the form of man, but even a, an infant, a child, a baby, that he would be born into this world in so-called vulnerability, so vulnerable that the dragon attempted to consume him even before he reached childhood, slaughtering thousands of children in an attempt to consume he who would grow and rise to consume him, the dragon. We thank you, Lord, because we were under Satan's power. We were under his dominion. We were under his control. We followed his whims, thinking that we were doing our own thing, thinking that we were pursuing our own agendas and our own desires, when all the time we were being drawn away and enticed and led astray after Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, the oppressor of all people, and yet, Lord, you sent the deliverer, and we thank you, Father God. Help us as we declare the victory of the dragon slayer, he who has defeated Satan and sin and has overcome this world. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Join us next time for more of God's truth to transform your reality.